Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So we have talked about a lot of different topics on this show recently, from Facebook to artificial intelligence, politics to culture, even aliens. But what we haven't discussed yet is race in America. Well, that's going to change this week. I'm really excited to welcome Jamil Smith to the show. Jamil is an opinion writer for Rolling Stone. He was formerly a reporter for MTV News, The New Republic. He's worked at MSNBC, CNN, you name it. And he recently wrote the cover story for Time Magazine on the Black Panther. He's going to join us today to talk about this very topic around race in this country, where it's okay and safe to be a black person in America and not be arrested or shot, and why he thinks that Ben Carson, who is African-American, might be the most racist person in the Trump administration. All right. Well, thanks for joining us this week on Inside the Hive. Appreciate it. The last time I saw you, we were on... um, Love it or leave it together, right? Yes, in Santa Monica. Uh, and I was trying to be funny and was not very good at it, and you were a lot funnier. Well, we were on a comedy stage, so it was natural for us it, to try. It was. It was natural for us to try. Um, so, uh, lots to talk about. I wanted to start with an article that you wrote this week uh, for Rolling Stone called, Where Can We Be Black? And it, it's a fascinating week, and it's a fascinating article in this context, because you have um, both... Two African-American men who were arrested in Starbucks right. for doing absolutely nothing right. except sitting there waiting for a meeting. Uh, you have um, an African-American man who won a Pulitzer. Uh, you have an African-American woman who's headlining Coachella. How is it that we have this world that we live in today in America, uh, 155 years after you know slavery ended, uh, where there is such a divergent world for people who are African-American. Well, I think that people, first of all, are a little too satisfied with whatever progress we already have made. All right. So there's that. Let's start there. You have a situation where I think racial progress is viewed differently by different groups. So whereas people who try and end, you know, generations of Jim Crow discrimination and, 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 you know, going all the way back to slavery um, and segregation, all these different ways that racism manifests in our lives in terms of policy and in terms of practice. And then you have people who simply just want us to all get along. And they think that that's the end game of the anti-racism struggle. So I think, first of all, we have to look at this as, you know, the fact that we're both you know, white and black coming at this from different angles. So there's that. But in this particular case with the Starbucks incident, I mean, you look at, you know, people, two guys who are there for a business meeting, like all of us have been at Starbucks for a a million years. We've been, we've been like, everyone goes to Starbucks for all kinds of different reasons. 
you know, you go there, sometimes you use the bathroom. You go I, there. That's why I use it a lot. I go just for the bathroom, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah. You go there to sometimes uh, cop the free Wi-Fi. Uh-huh. You go there sometimes to meet, you know, business partners. Once when, in a while, you go get a, go get a coffee there. Yeah, but I mean, I don't drink coffee, so <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I can only speak for myself. I go there usually to, uh, you know, use the bathroom, get the Wi-Fi, and uh, generally kill some time. Um, so, okay, so these two uh, two young men, they go into to the Starbucks. It's literally two minutes from the time that they sit down to the time that someone calls 911. Is that – what is – that's sim- symptomatic of something, right? That is um, uh, – there is something that is driving the person who decided to call uh, the police uh, to do that. Um, and what, now, so here's the part I don't understand. Is it – the media is it um is it just historical i mean you know is what what is it well i can't get into the head of that particular woman who yes, did that of course but let's think about let's think through her actions a little bit these two gentlemen get in at 4:35 walk in there they're ready for a business meeting they're waiting for a business partner to arrive for a 4:45 meeting she apparently goes up to them and asks them, you know, if they want anything or if they would like to order anything. Which, first of all, I've never had happen I, to me I've in a never Starbucks. Had that happen to me either. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, that's a, that's a tell that she's quite nervous uh, about these two gentlemen getting, you know, being in there, uh, thinking that you know for some reason if they're not there to order coffee, what are they there for? She didn't envision that possibility that they could be there to talk about commercial real estate, but you know, and uh, so they. You know, they're sitting there, and then she, without asking them to leave, calls 911 on them. And very calmly, if you listen to the call, you know, <laughs> says, you know, we, we got two guys in here that don't want to uh, order anything. And, and you know, like, well, how is that something that you call the cops over? That's the thing that gets me, is that using police, essentially, to police that space so that it's safe for you and people who are like you. And that, that to me is what we, it really is at the heart of this. I, the first thing I thought about when I looked at this case was Tamir Rice. You know yeah. why? Because yeah. I'm from Cleveland, and I know that part of Cleveland, that west side area where he was killed. And here's a young boy playing with you know a toy gun in public space, in a public park. And some gentleman decides that that is dangerous or he's doing something dangerous. And rather than talking to the boy or, or, or trying to figure out some, some other way to approach it, he calls the cops. He uses the police to intercede. He uses the police as a tool. And we all saw what happened. I mean, you got to talk about two minutes, less than two seconds after the police arrived there, Tamir Rice is shot and killed. And in this situation, things could have been a lot uglier than they than well, they were. That's the part to me that is so insanely mind-boggling that the woman who called 911 didn't that the thought process that went through her head wasn't like, "Oh, I've seen all these instances of young black men being killed by the police when they have when they have done nothing wrong. If I call the police, is there a chance that that's going to happen?" I mean, it just is it truly boggles my mind that she didn't think that through. Right. I mean, this is not something that's unfamiliar to anyone who's been paying attention over the last several years. I mean, maybe po- the, uh, the idea of police brutality was something that was foreign to a lot of folks before, say, you know, Ferguson, you know, or before the proliferation of all of these cell phone videos showed people like Walter Scott and uh, Oscar Grant and all these other folks dying on camera. But 
now you have no excuse essentially. And, 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 and she just obviously didn't care, you know, what, what could happen to these young men. She didn't care. So how, how do you think that this is going to change? It's literally been 155 years since the emancipation proclamation. We, you know, we've had a, an African-American president, um, you name it. Mm. And yet this is still essentially a massive, massive problem in this country. I think it will change when white people decide it wants, it can change, um, when they want it to change. Because here's the thing, black folks, I mean, let's just first of all take the history of this, 155 years since the Emancipation Proclamation, right? But that's a very short period of time compared to the entire history of black people in this country, uh, in, on, at least on this piece of land. So... You know, we're still in the beginning stages of this. I mean, really, we're talking about, yeah, 155 years since then, but only really, you know, a generation or two since the end of segregation. You know, the, was it the end of Jim Crow, which is rampant through, you know, not just the South, but also in, you know, manifesting in its way, in, you know, in, in certain ways in the North. So when you look at the process, we're really still at the beginning of this. And black people have led that process that led that fight for freedom, led this push for awareness of all the ways that racism and discrimination manifest in our society. White people need to be more, I wouldn't say, you know, involved per se, you don't necessarily need to go to a march or you need to donate to a particular organization, but you need to be a part of helping other Americans who are like you, you know, essentially seed this position of advantage of privilege and and understand how the everyday things that you the sort of unearned advantages that you benefit from um are because of racism or because of you know systemic uh disadvantages that uh continue to perpetuate themselves well what's really fascinating is i i did a i did a volunteer program um a few months ago where we went to a prison with defy ventures um mm. and um mm. it was a maximum security prison in in northern california and one of the things they do in the very beginning of the of the day is you're there to kind of offer guidance and advice to prisoners who are trying to develop a business um, idea. And so one of the things they do is it's a very classic, you know, let's bring everyone together. They put it's a big, you know, as you imagine in like all the prison movies, there's a big room that we're all in. It's like the the rec room, and they put two lines of tape on either side of of a of a line about four feet apart, and they have all the volunteers, mostly white. Mm-hmm. Um, stand on one side, and then all of the prisoners, mostly African-American or Hispanic, stand on the other. And then they go through these questions, and they say, if, I, if, you, if this answer is correct, step forward. Um, and so they have everyone step back, and they say, if you like rap music, step forward. And there's a mixture of people from both sides. If you uh, read a novel in the last year, step forward, things like that. And then they say, um, if you were tucked into bed at night, and, and kiss goodnight and someone told you I love you as a little kid, step forward. And uh, like 90% of the volunteers stepped forward and maybe four of the prisoners did. Mm. And I had this moment of realization there as a parent myself that the, the white privilege is not something that happens necessarily when you're, <laughs> you know, 18 getting your first job or 35 getting a promotion or whatever it is. It happens when you're born. Right. And, and and I guess the question that I've been thinking about a lot since then is how how does someone change that who is not 
in the position to change it. Well, here's the thing. You, first of all, you change it with, you know, you're a parent. You change it with, in the way that you raise your kids. You change it for the next generation. You, you know, you raise them to understand the, the advantages, the inherent, you know, uh, privileges that they have. And to help, you know, essentially work against that. Now, granted, you know, they're young. It's early for them to do that just yet. But at the same My thing. My toddler just started walking. So, you know. <laughs> well, get him on this, yeah. Nick. Come on. <laughs> But, I mean, thinking back to your example, um, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, well, you know, parents didn't uh, read them a story and tuck them in at night, tell them that they love them at night because uh, they don't love them or because, like, you know, black life is inherently harder or harsher. I mean, I think the first thing I thought of was, uh, you know, black parents might have been at work Mm -hmm. at the time, yeah, you know, or black parents might have been right where they were in prison. Yeah, which is what the, the the next thing was. Step forward if you grew up with one of your kids in prison and pretty much yeah. one of one of your parents in prison and and you know it's 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 a systemic problem that you know having Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump running the country is not going to do it any favors right and you really think about what they're trying to accomplish here they are trying to protect the same spaces for white people that the Starbucks manager was trying to protect. They're saying like, you know, it may not be 1801 Spruce Street in Philadelphia, uh, you know, near Rittenhouse Square where it's mostly white and, you know, we're trying to make sure that this space is safe for people who are living in this very ritzy area. But they're trying to make the entire country essentially that. They're saying that it's like, we want people who are like us to feel as comfortable as possible. And the way that that, we see that happening is by making sure that, people who we deem criminal people who we you know just assign this label to are you know are locked away we just tuck them away we put you know put them away in society we don't think about them and they think that that they're not really trying to solve crime so much as they are trying to you know create a new definition of safety when you think about so i um i had jennifer palmieri on the the podcast a couple weeks ago um who was obama's um White House communications director for a few years and ran Hillary's campaign and so on. And one of the things we were talking about a little bit is that that Trump was a response. The Trump winning in many ways was not necessarily because of Comey, who we'll get to, who you and I both think is a complete another joke. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, we'll get to him in a little bit. Um, but it was more a response to Obama and the things that he was able to do. Yeah. Do you think that you know it's there are a million articles out there that talks about you know Trump being racist and the things that he's done over the years to in his buildings you know not letting black people buy or rent apartments intentionally evicting them you know I mean we could spend an hour just talking about those things right do you think that that there the, what do you think the reaction is going to be to Trump and the way he is handling the country and do you think that there are things that he is doing now uh, that are driving race into in, into an even further divide. Oh, well, certainly. I mean, I think that you know you see it not just in his in his reckless rhetoric, um, you know, but also most importantly in policy and in efforts like we mentioned earlier, Jeff Sessions, um, you know, essentially uh, signaling that the Justice Department isn't interested in pursuing police reform. 
it doesn't really feel like it's necessary. Um, you know, seeking to put as many people in jail as possible, doing the best to criminalize marijuana. Um, all these different things uh, that they are doing to essentially with the end goal of putting more black and brown bodies in prison. You know, they're they're going for it. Uh, so that's exacerbating the divide, certainly in a number of ways. But also, if you look at what we just saw in Kansas yesterday with the conviction of three right wing uh, militiamen in rural Kansas who were threatening to, you know, blow up Muslim, you know, immigrants in, you know, in, in a community there. And, and they are the, the, we, they are people who are, you know, quite obviously radicalized by the election of Donald Trump and the, the political elevation of Donald Trump. So this is a problem that we're going to be living with a long time after he is gone. And do you think that, there's going to be a, I mean, so if you look today, statistically, there's uh, black prisoners make up 34% of the prison population, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 6.8 million. And, um, and they, how do you, how do you fix that? It's, it's not, I mean, this is, it's only, I guess the question is, is it going to be worse for, after Trump for, for a long, long time, or is there a world in which we can kind of roll roll oh, the disaster back? No, I, I don't think that this is necessarily going to be worse after Trump for a very long time. Necessarily, I think first a lot. Of, first of all, it's for a lot of people, it's the same. This is what a lot of people have been living through, and frankly, as as apprehensive as a lot of you know white people on the left are to Trump, I mean, they are getting a taste of what life has been like for. A lot of us, in a way, because they are seeing, you know, what it's like to, you know, live under, you know, sort of in a state where it's it's just, you know, nakedly oppressive. And I just think that, you know, if it's a good wake up call, I don't necessarily think it's a good thing that we see that he's president. I don't think it's a good thing that he was elected. I don't think we. I don't think the society needed this uh, in order to sort of get conscious about racism and, and, and other forms of bigotry. But I do think that it can emerge stronger on the other side. And I think that this this November really holds a key to, uh, you know, to di- dictating a lot of what's going to happen. Um, because I think that, you know, first of all, if you if you see the Democrats take the House and perhaps even the Senate, um, that essentially neuters the policy part of his presidency, you know, for the next two years, which frankly is exactly what we, what should be the priority. And then as far as whether or not he will, you know, who will win in 2020, I, I, who knows? But the point is, I think the Democrats into, you know, the, to a larger extent, the people who are pushing the Democrats to be better um, can, can take this moment and, do something positive with it. But I think there's a lot of momentum that has been lost um, from the Obama presidency on a number of fronts, environmentally uh, in particular, um, that it's going to be hard to get going again. I just think it's a waste. We've wasted a lot of time with this guy. But so the part, I I guess I, I, so one of the things I've complained about on the show since the beginning of the show a year ago um, is that 91 million Americans didn't vote. Right. They yeah. thought, part of part of it was because they thought Hillary was going to win, and they thought, "Oh, it's just another Clinton," and so on. Part of it was that they couldn't get out of work. You know, there's like yeah. lots of different reasons. But 91 million, and what's what I don't understand is a why most of them didn't vote, but also why 
African-American voter turnout dropped so dramatically when it was so apparent that Trump was racist and was going to put people in. I mean, we saw the thing this week with um, Wendy Vitter, uh, who is a judicial nominee and was asked um, how she felt about Brown v. Board and if she would support it today. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't say that she would i mean th- that to me is it's it's 2018 that's just it's that's to me is more right. astounding than what happened in starbucks mm. um and um and so when you look at voter turnout uh for 2016 um it was 59.6 percent of african americans that voted um 65.3 percent white um it was a million less uh than had voted uh in right. the previous election is that because that that they don't believe that it's going to have any impact or I mean, I think that there's a big, there's a lot of different reasons. Number one is a lot of them had their votes suppressed. Yeah. So let's start there. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're talking about, you know, Wisconsin, for instance, uh, Wisconsin, you know, it's been revealed that, you know, several thousand more votes essentially were suppressed in Wisconsin than the margin by which Trump won. But the, going back to Wisconsin, I keep coming back to this one story in the New York times that came out right around the election. It was before the election. In which, uh, you know, they were talking to brothers in a barbershop, I believe, in in Milwaukee. And they just didn't feel like anyone was on the ballot who could represent them. And I don't necessarily think that was about not having a black candidate, you know, on the presidential ticket. I think that was about seeing a black president for eight years and all the different things that come with that, culturally speaking, all the wonderful things that came with that. But in terms of policy, in terms of actually making their lives better, I don't necessarily think that those brothers saw it manifest in terms of like their lives getting better. And they saw politics as this kind of wonderful showy thing, but it's not necessarily doing anything for me. You know, if I, why am I going to vote if I don't feel like you know, the politicians are working for me. I understand that mindset, but I, I mean, I don't agree with it, it but it seems it's, it's but, almost but like, I also, because I also think voting is a selfless act. I don't, you can't vote for what you need. You have to vote for what everyone needs. It's like picking a meal on an airplane. They're all going to suck, but one's going to be a little <laughs> better than another. Right. You just brought me back to my sesame noodle salad on my last flight. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, Nick. At least you didn't get the chicken. There was chicken in it. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I do think that I, I understand that argument, but it just I it, it black, white, Hispanic, whatever. I yeah. cannot comprehend how people are not. They don't see a candidate like Trump or even Hillary. They don't like Hillary, and they don't say I am going to vote to do the thing that the. People that millions of people have died for in right. an attempt to, to to do. Well, the, the, yeah, but they see a lot of generations don't. We are moved far enough from the Selma generation that there are a number of young folks who don't see the sacrifices made during that time during the civil rights era um, as being relatable to them. And you know, like I, I can't get in their heads. I don't know their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, so. I'm not going to poo-poo it, but at the same time, I was raised by a grandmother who was, you know, and, and mother and, and father and grandfather who were all very civic-minded, my grandmother especially. And, 
she, you know, voting was a civic obligation. Voting is something that is as important to us uh, as as paying taxes. You know, it's something you just do. And it's it's not something that you do for yourself. It's you do it for your community. You do it for, you know, the benefit of the, you know, Everything, everything from making sure that the, the roads are fixed to every, making sure your children are educated properly. Um, I There may be some people who just said, look, um, I don't see a difference between Trump and Clinton. And those people obviously are dead wrong. Uh, but it's it, it's 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 up to the Democrats to motivate, motivate those people and, and to show them that they have someone worth voting for. While those voting, you know, those attitudes towards voting may be flawed. That is the framework within which Democrats need to, to to win. And so it's up to them to figure out a way to do better than they did in 2016, for sure, because the message that they were selling, despite the fact that Clinton was one of the more sort of conspicuously anti-racist uh, candidates that I'd, I'd seen, you know, at least from a white candidate in, in quite a while, that message didn't resonate because, you know, people were saying, oh, well, super predators this and all these other things mm-hmm. from the past. And it's 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 going to be tough. You got to have the right candidate. You got to have the right message. Do you think that Obama did enough to try to 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 erase some of the racial divide in America or, or was his candidacy something that uh, in the same way that the Trump winning is is organizing the left more um do you think that uh that his his candidacy obama's candidacy was mm-hmm. something that rallied the right more and drove more division of our race well i think about that question from a policy standpoint um i don't necessarily think it's his job to erase the racial divide from a cultural standpoint um it's just not the job of what of the president it just isn't what he or she is supposed to be doing what he or she is supposed to be doing is remedying the racial divide on a policy and structural level. And in there, in that case, I don't think he did do enough. And I don't necessarily think that it's all his fault. Hmm. I just don't think enough got accomplished in eight years. And I don't know if enough could get accomplished in eight years. I think you needed a good string of presidents who, who had, um, you know, at the forefront of their platform, the conscious desire and plans to remedy, you know, the wrongs of the past, essentially, to make sure that the housing discrimination was completely eliminated. Because it really, as my man Gene Demby from NPR says, it really all starts with housing discrimination. And all these different things that, you know, are within our society, environmental racism, all these different things that are built and baked into the American project. You needed more eight, more than eight years to fix that. And I think people had a lot of unrealistic re, uh, expectations of President Obama in that regard. That said, yeah, there's things he could have done better. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that people need to look at themselves a little bit more rather than looking to their leaders uh, and, and understand what we can be doing in our everyday lives uh, and in our offices and our churches and our synagogues and our, you know, everywhere to, I think to figure this out. It's, it's really fascinating when you kind of look at the eight years in which Obama was president. It was also the eight years in which the smartphone and social media became a norm. And, and there's this 
moment that we saw, this kind of flash moment that really goes back to Ferguson, um, where there's this change in the conversation because there is video to prove that there is, without question, (laughs) racial discrimination when it comes to police shootings and, you know, as you mentioned, Tamir Rice and, and so on. And it's, I wonder if, and I'm curious what you think, if, if the more we become comfortable with those, that footage and the more we mm. see of it, if it starts to, we become desensitized to it? Yeah, no, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think, you know, the more people see of it, it seems like, and I, I wrote about this in 2015, you know, when it, we saw uh, the McKinney pool incident with a young girl being, mm-hmm. you know, wrangled by a police officer in wrangled, Texas. Wrangled, I think, be- beaten up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, just yeah. kind of yoked around and, and, and brutalized. And yeah. then you have, you know... You know, Stefan Clark, you know, it goes, it's all part of a long continuum. And I think that the more we hear about it, unfortunately, I think this is a sort of a, a fault that's built into this American project. The more we hear about it, the more we get numb to it. And, and I say we in it as in a collective American, we not Certainly not we as a black American we. We just are just traumatized by it. I mean, every time I, I didn't even watch the Starbucks video, even though I knew there was no violence in it, I didn't watch that video for days uh, because, I mean, I read descriptions of it. I knew I read the news about it. I knew what had happened in it. But watching the video was just going to be a little bit too much for me at the time. You know, I just said, you know what? Uh, I, I just can't. I just, I just can't today. You know, I just, there's just you, days where I just can't. Do you think that, um, uh, and I totally understand that I've, I've watched videos of, you know, just even random videos of, of, um, cops pulling African American people over and you see them violently beating them up or the, mm-hmm. the, the, now the, this footage that you see pretty constantly of a, of someone driving by with a, their cell phone as, as a cop is like roughing up some kid oh, on yeah. the side of the road and, and it's infuriating and terrifying to watch. And, and I, um, I, it's interesting that I sometimes see kids, African-American kids in LA that are like walking around with like a hoodie on. And I want to like say, what are you doing? Like the cops, it's like, what are you, it's, and it's, but <laughs> I don't what, wear red or blue in this town. But, I mean, I, yeah, but I, I get it, <laughs> but it's terrible that we live in a society that that's the thought process that goes through my head. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is terrible. I but at the same time, whose fault is that? You know what I mean? Like, I, and that's the thing. It's like we. Well, that's it, the original. That's the question and, I asked you in the beginning. It's, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like the fault of of it lies with not the people who are wearing the hoodies, not with the people who are sitting in Starbucks minding their own business. Um, we should be allowed to be black in any space that we want to be black in. And it goes, this this part we can't change. This is who we are. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Despite the efforts of some, it is not something you can change. And this country at some point has got to become comfortable with our existence here beyond what, you know, our ability to entertain them, you know, beyond they're, they're comfortable with us, you know, when we're on a football field and, you know, we're, they're comfortable with us when we're on a basketball court. We're comfortable with us uh, even, it seems, when we're on a Coachella stage. Uh, but they are not all comfortable with us when we're sitting next to them in a coffee shop. And at, at the end of the day, you know, that, that is what has to change. And, and people, you know, who have those issues 
really need to look within themselves. And this is something that goes it goes beyond race. I mean, think about, you know, this this conflict in gender. You know what I mean? Like men need to be comfortable with women in certain spaces. You know yeah. what I mean? When we we just we the, just frankly haven't been. Spe- speaking of videos, the Tony Robbins video, did you see that? Oh yeah. Oh my god. I mean, first of all, he just looks like he's an aggressive yeah. jerk. And second of all, like, what planet are you living on that you think that that's so? If 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 you're a business coach and one of your the, the CEOs says to you, "I'm not going to hire this woman because she's too attractive," yeah. you should fire him as one of your as one of your business coach. It's like, yeah, when I, when I saw it it, it, it just spoke to the the ability of extreme wealth yep. to build certain communities and to insulate you. And to allow for the fostering and, and, and the protection of certain attitudes, yeah, um, completely that uh, that are just poisonous. And look, I mean, you know, there's probably you know, there's some guy making thirty grand a year who agrees with what Tony Robbins had to say. It's not necessarily all about that, but the, the fact is, you know, when you have that kind of prestige and wealth, and you know, you you live in certain circles which are predominantly and overwhelmingly male. Um, you get to, or at least you think you, you think you can, evidently, um, espouse certain attitudes. Yeah. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, John, I want to take a minute to, uh, to welcome you back to the show, but I want to tell you a little bit about the underwear I'm wearing right now. Nick, tell me everything about the underwear you're wearing right now. I am wearing the most comfortable underwear that you have can't you can't even imagine. It's called Silver Underwear. It's made by Mac Weldon. Oh, Mac Weldon, know it well. You know Mac Weldon. Ma- I so love Mac Weldon. Love Mac Weldon. They're they are a sponsor this week, and um and I got to I got to go to the site and do a little shopping, and I have to say I have never ever in my entire life. Uh, worn underwear this comfortable I'm, I'm wearing i'm actually like in the whole mac weldon getup. i've got a t-shirt on that is that feels like i'm wearing butter i'm i've got these amazing sweatpants these these gray sweatpants um the the underwear it's fantastic the the guys who started it uh are amazing and they did it because they just were sick of dealing with the whole nonsense of you know buying clothes like this uh and so they built this incredible website where you just go you buy your stuff and 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 you feel like you're sitting in the greatest pair of underwear in history nick i'm not surprised that you're happier than your wildest fantasies could have ever assumed the mission's pretty Um, simple at mac weldon i think that they make sure that you have all your basics and, and beyond, frankly, and that they're smartly designed and that the shopping experience is, is easy. And that, you know, people yeah. get frustrated uh, with their underwear. And I don't know a guy who isn't, that now they have every sock or underwear or T-shirt option uh, that is perfectly fitted just for them. It's a miracle. Well, you can actually get 20% off your first order at Mac Weldon uh, by entering the promo code HIVE at checkout. That's H-I-V-E. So 20% off. I mean, you could get a pair of socks for the price of a cup of coffee, and they will be the, the most comfortable socks you've ever worn in your life, or underwear, or T-shirts, or any of the wonderful things they sell. Once again, you go to MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, and enter HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off. I can assure you, buy this underwear, buy these socks, buy these pants, all this stuff. You will be forever happier than you've ever been in your life. This is life-changing underwear. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just everyday life. All right, so uh, 
Let's go from uh, uh, from black to as white as possible. Paul Ryan. Is, is that is Mitch McConnell whiter or? I would go with Mitch McConnell there. Mitch but McConnell yeah. is probably. Um, I guess. But I think it's a good contrast. Trump is not. He's orange, so he's. Um, Trump is from Queens. So, <laughs> Trump like would like to think he's white and pure, but no, not even close. So you wrote a piece a few weeks ago um, uh, how Paul Ryan loves identity politics uh, despite what Paul Ryan says, um, and <laughs> yeah. he has essentially spent his entire career trying to make life better for people just like Paul Ryan, right? Right. Yeah, and that's the thing. Here's the thing: like, one of the interesting and peculiar things I think about this this right wing attack on quote unquote identity politics, which is ostensibly the Politics by which we, you know, apportion, you know, various topics and policies by gender, race, however we particularly uh, classify people. It's really interesting to see them complain about how that is so divisive and how it is, in fact, a detriment to our society when, in fact, their policies are oriented almost exclusively to you know, build in benefits for people who look just like them. And when I say just like them, we're talking about people who look and are like Paul Ryan, white, straight, wealthy, educated men. You know, and with with lots of money. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just the idea that like somehow if I complain about or I make mention of certain inequities that are, you know, assigned to a particular identity, gender, race, what have you. And I'm the one that's being divisive. I'm the racist. And yet you can, you know, proffer forth these policies uh, that, uh, that continue to, you know, further exacerbate and take advantage of these unearned uh, benefits. And you are not racist. Like, how can you push for tax cuts and, 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 and cuts to, to nutrition assistance and, and other forms of, uh, of welfare um, and say that you're not, into identity politics. That's just, it's just an absolute ignorance, uh, willful ignorance um, about what America is and has, and is becoming. Um, do you think that, so Paul Ryan is thankfully going to exit stage left. Um, <laughs> yeah. God, please let Mitch McConnell go right after him. Um, <laughs> do you, so one of the things that we've seen as a result of the Me Too movement has been a, response where more women are uh, running for office mm-hmm. uh, than we've ever seen in history. Yes. Um, and I think a large percentage of them will actually win um, and or they will have a massive impact on the people who do. Right. Um, we, there was some, it seems like based on just voter turnout, there's some complacency after Obama from African-Americans in, in this country. Um do you think that, or not complacency, but just a belief that their vote apathy doesn't count. probably is yeah. a little bit more, yeah. yeah, on point. Do you think that as a result of Trump and Sessions and the things that they're doing, um, and even Ben Carson, uh, mm. housing and so on, do you think that we will? And this is just a kind of guess as a prediction, so I, I know you can only kind of um, guess, but that that we could see a world where. Let's pretend that Trump doesn't win in 2020, please God, um, and that someone else does uh, who's on the Democratic ticket. Do you think that there could be a response where we see more African-Americans running and winning? 
I mean, I, I would certainly hope so. I mean, you see, you know, I think it depends, you know, you'd see black women involved in this, in this battle. You see women of color, really not just black women, but you know, Latina women and other women of color who are getting involved in this process as a result of this me too cultural mm-hmm. push. Mm-hmm. Um, and even those who were in it, in the fight before then, like Stacey Abrams, who's running to be the first black woman governor of, of Georgia. Uh, I think that, a lot depends upon how much success we see in 2018. Um, also, I just I think that people need to see on a grander scale politics as something that can do something in their lives, do something positive. We know po- the the negative effect of politics, but we people people need to understand that it can empower them. And I think that. It's incredibly encouraging to see as many women participating in this process as possible. But the key of this is all money. You know what I mean? If if there's going to be more money available for African-American candidates who are coming out of, uh, of, uh, say, modest circumstances and want to make a change, great. You know, but largely, you know, if you're not somebody who is making a good salary and can attract donors, it's just a pipe dream. You know, I, I... I've seen any number of people, you know, people who I know personally get involved in political process. A friend of mine from high school ran for the school board, uh, you know, and and won and back home in, in suburban Cleveland. But at the same time, I, you know, there's a lot of people who I grew up with who probably, it just seems like Where did it's you too up? much to dream. I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, a suburb of uh, Cleveland, and uh, was born and raised in Cleveland and... You know, I see there a lot of hope and hopelessness, you know, when I go back home. Um, But at the same time, I I definitely just feel like when people are inspired to run, it goes beyond just sort of like, okay, I'm I'm a woman and I'm inspired to run or I'm I'm a black person. I'm inspired to run by a particular cultural moment. They, They have to feel like there's a change that they can make that they have power to, to actually make this a reality. And until people feel more empowered just in general in this, in this country, I don't think necessarily we'll see um, that, that, that same, that similar jump that you're talking about. All right. Let's talk about my least favorite person right now. Ooh. I don't know if he's my least favorite person, actually. He's just annoying. You know what? I, you know, <laughs> the other night I was asleep and I, w- I was woken up around two in the morning and there was a mosquito in my ear and it woke me up and I, I was like, my wife was like, Oh my God, there's a mosquito in the room. We're trying to figure out where it is. And I'm like Googling how to find a mosquito. Do you know that the way you find a mosquito is you're supposed to turn the lights out, wait till you hear the, turn the lights on and hold a flashlight parallel to the ceiling to see if you, or the walls to see if you can see the shadow of the mosquito and then you kill it. Wow. Sounds like an awful lot of work. That, that sounds very complicated. Um, but the mosquito made me think about uh, James Comey. It had the same <laughs> buzzing annoyance. Uh, that was like, and I, every time I turned around, I could hear him, but I couldn't see him. And I was like, what? So you just, another piece that you wrote about uh, is James Comey's infomercial, which I thought was fantastic. And, um, is he the most annoying person right now? I mean, or is it just me? Like, there's there's something about this that has bothered me from the start. Uh, I just 
look, we're both writers. We understand that, you know, writing books is part of this industry. It's part of what, you know, we're, we've gotten ourselves into. Um, that said, if you have specific truths to tell about the president, about this country, about what happened in your particular position of power during, you know, this particularly momentous time, I, I just have some icky about selling a book to tell those truths. And like, like I got to go on a book tour and I got to have all these exclusive interviews and it's all about, you know, uh, it's all about the money. And it, as I wrote, as I wrote in the piece, it's like, instead of apologizing, which he should have done, he should have done that explicitly. And instead of apologizing and admitting that he was wrong to release the details of that memo, uh, you know, release that memo to Congress about the Hillary Clinton investigation weeks before the election, knowing that Congress was going to leak it. Instead of apologizing for that, he's asking us to empathize with him, but he's asking us to empathize after we hand him a check. And that, to me, is gross. <laughs> it's just it, it's just foul. And, and I, I just, there's, there's a reckoning that he has yet to accept that uh, he would like, you know, it, I don't think Jim Comey, at the end of the day, is a inherently bad person. I don't really care. No, I don't think he's a bad, bad person. person. I don't think. I he think is. he's trailing a lot of truths. Um, I think he's weirdly, after being so averse to politics before, apparently, he's now inserted himself fully into it. Yeah, he's 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 full. full yeah, don't give me the BS that you're like. Right. I'm not into politics, and then go out there and and. Yeah. No, I, I think for him, I think it's what's so frustrating is when he put out that memo and even through the whole process with the fucking emails, the stupid emails, right. which now turns out that everyone on the Trump administration has their own little private email system like that no one wants to talk about, that he was – he, he was just wrong in the way he approached it time and again. Yeah. And, and I think that if you – Anyone who is is touting about how amazing Comey is right now, um, uh, on the left specifically, uh, in those 10 days leading up to the election, yeah. the days after the election, they were not thinking that. And I, and I think that he's what is so frustrating is he's trying to play both cards. He's saying, oh, it wasn't my fault. It was an accident. You know, I, ha- I was trying to do the right thing. And by the way, I'm, I'm with you now because I don't like Trump. Um, <laughs> and right. it's like, go away. Yeah, you know, like, and also like your intent. I think we. This is just a broader point, and it gets gets back to what we we started this conversation with. Intent is such so highly valued in our society. You know, we we we're always worried about what somebody wanted to do or what somebody intended to do, um, and it, we we build it into our laws. You know, like if you intended to shoot Stephon Clark eight times, you know, it means something more. You know, if you intended to murder uh, Trayvon Martin, if you intended to kill Tra- uh, Tamir Rice, if you intended to um, to reverse housing discrimination rules, all the, the intent means so much to so many people. When in fact, it just the result is what matters. And James Comey has yet to accept that the result of his actions. Um, may have very well swung this uh, this 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 election, and to you know a, a president who appears to be under the thumb of the of the Russian Federation, <laughs> and that 
that's a very serious error that I think he's yet to really deal with. And yeah, and watching so. him do it in public, watching him flail in public is 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 not a terribly interesting spectacle to me. I think that he should have titled his book "Not a Higher Loyalty," but I'm sorry. Then I would yeah. have been like, you know what? I'll give him money for that. I would, I would, I would listen to that argument. But uh, the, even the title, "A Higher Loyalty," you know, it just imp- it has a sanctimony to it that just isn't earned. So, okay, so one of the things that you've written about and I've talked about a lot um, is the where this all begins, this, mm. the problems in this country, and all starts with education, yes. right? Yes. Um, and I would argue that we probably have the worst secretary of education in office right now. Certainly the most dangerous. Most da- than we've ever had. And maybe I wouldn't say ever because, you know. There are people. Uh, there are historians who may correct me on that record. But I think that Betsy DeVos, and I've, and I've written as much, is the most dangerous cabinet member that Trump has appointed. I'm, I'm going to go with Scott Pruitt. But I'm. I'll, I'll I hear give you. you this. Let's, he's trying to kill the. He's trying, he's to, trying kill to kill the, planet. the whole Earth. I get it. You know. <laughs> um, so tell us why. What. 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 What is it with DeVos? Well, first of all, um, she is part of the, like. Uh, you know, she's like at the head of Trump's project to build the worst government possible on purpose. You know, this cakeistocracy, as people have termed it. She has no experience in doing what you know she's been charged to do like many others, but also she has some really dangerous ideas about education that um, would not only serve to, you know, further exacerbate uh, educational divides by community and race and so on and so forth, but also, um, you know, some of them are just downright theocratic and that is not, you know, we talk about what the founders intended. That's obviously not what the founders intended. Um, You know, she is a zealot for this, this, this school choice um, notion that has been proven to fail um, minority communities, and uh, and frankly, um, you know, her connections to you know through her brother, you know Eric Prince of Blackwater Infamy, um, are certainly not helpful either. So I just think that you know overall, I'm really, I just have to question the sanity to a certain extent of any senator who voted who voted for her who thought that. This is a person that should be running the, the, the Department of Education. Do you it, think that – so, you know, fast – it's interesting when you start to look at the history of, um, of, of voting in America um, and, you know, cabinet members and so on. You can see – it's. I mean, it's very difficult to, pe- to put these things together, but there are these dots that point out, oh, the reason we are here today is because 17 and a half years ago, X happened. It's not right. – you know, the things that we – that Trump is doing now, um, barring the fact of, you know, that Scott Pruitt is probably going to destroy the planet, we won't see the effects of those for many, many years. Um, what do you think the effects of Betsy DeVos are going to be a generation from now? Well, see, that's the thing. It's that I think while well, actually Scott Pruitt is not getting a whole lot done, really, he's not. Because he's he's just proposing things and sort of like saying he's going to change rules and then they're going to get fought in court or the, you know stuff is way off. Whatever he, the consequences of his misdoings, um, in, as far as policy, well, he probably are, spends quite a while shaving down the devil horns every day, right? I mean, that's got to take it's got to take a couple of hours. That, to that, go that out can, public. I'm, I'm sure that can be very time consuming. But I think that with you know Betsy DeVos, I mean, you have, I think maybe. The, the possibility for more immediate consequences. I'll say that. And I think that 
I think a lot depends upon, frankly, you know, who the next president is and who the next secretary of education will be. Because I think, you know, those policies, anything they're putting in place now, you know, largely is, you know, either going to be held up in court or going to be, uh, you know, fought, you know, tooth and nail by whoever's coming in, you know, if it's a Democratic administration. If it's a Republican one, I see no reason why they wouldn't just maintain the course. So I think a lot has to depend, a lot depends, getting back to this voting thing, on what people decide to do in 2018 and 2020. I think, you know, the people are going to determine the long-term effect of Betsy DeVos and Ben Carson and Scott Pruitt and Ryan Zinke and all these other um, clowns who are, are running our country into the ground. What do you think, um, is Carson getting anything done? I mean, he's yeah, he's he's making he's making it easier for people to discriminate against people, uh, other you know, people of color uh, in, in in housing. I does think he's he, he's doing he's doing great things for them. Does he? I don't understand. Does he look in the mirror and see a white guy? Like what? What's the the no, logic? See, here's, I mean, I don't know. People have their theories about Ben Carson, and I have mine, which is that he has invested so thoroughly. In his myth of Horatio altruism, this this like pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, this 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 kid from who's from he's poor from Detroit who rose up and became the most famous neurosurgeon in the world and and did all these great things and you know gifted hands and I, everything's great. Um, and I don't you know I don't know if it's the God complex that you know apparently a lot of doctors have, but. I think he's so invested in his own mythology that he is determined to be, you know, sort of like, I guess, the god of it, of that mythology. He is, he is, I think the best way is to put it, I don't think Ben Carson, I don't really talk usually in terms of like sell out and, you know, want to be white and all this other kind of stuff, because frankly... I got enough of that growing up and it's very damaging. It's just like, you know, and I'm not trying to do that to anybody else. That said, I think, you, you know, you have to look at people who are consciously doing the work of white supremacy. Ben Carson is doing that. You know, I don't know what he sees when he looks in, at himself in the mirror, but I definitely think that, you know, this whole bootstrap myth that he's got uh, doesn't take into account uh, people who were born without boots and uh, <laughs> he doesn't much care about them. He just simply, he's so removed from that reality. Um, and he's, he's another very, very dangerous person and to put into the kind of position that he's in. All right, let's, let's, um, we have about 10 minutes left and I kind of want to get your, your thought on some, some other folks in the administration. And then also, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, is there anyone you like? Anyone I like in the administration. Wow. Any cabinet members, interns, maybe mm. cleaning crew? No. no, no one. No, and I'll tell you why. Yep, because they all knew what they were signing up for. They all, I think, more than any other president in <laughs> certainly in our lifetimes, they understood exactly the project that they were were joining, which is one to you know. <laughs> Essentially, make this government as is comfortable for like we're saying white, straight, wealthy men uh, as as is as, as humanly possible. And so that was um, that was what they signed up for. They signed up to be part of a corrupt presidency. Uh, they signed up to be a part of uh, an intellectually lazy presidency. And 
we can, you know, the, the one of the weirdest things that's happening in, in political press, I, I think, over the last several you know months, is this notion that you know, oh well, you know, John Kelly will go in there and moderate what Trump is is doing. He'll he'll he'll, he'll keep him his impulses in check. There is no keeping this guy in check. This guy has been in the public eye for for what four decades, and has anyone been effective at keeping him in check? No. He is a loose cannon, and anyone who signs on to work with a loose cannon um, is 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 going to be a part of uh, administering the damage that he uh, that he deals out. So, no, I, I don't. You know, I, it's not like whether or not I like them personally. Who cares? No, but no, I, it's but, not. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Hard. But I'm I'm not saying that that's what you were asking. But I just I think that it's I, I just can't really feel sorry for any of them. You know, I, I hear they're getting having trouble finding jobs now Good. when they leave the White House. Fine, great. <laughs> you know, go go work at you know go work in retail or, or something else. You know, understand what the other side, how the other side lives. Do you think that um, that they are all in some way uh, the same have the same viewpoints as as Trump on race? They, they all have some sort of racist bent to them. I mean, here's the thing: it doesn't matter even if Trump is a racist. They are doing the work of white supremacy. They are doing the actual work. So whether or not they feel in their heart of hearts, whether or not they see me in a Starbucks and say, hmm, I'm uncomfortable, let me tell the manager, whether or not they, you know, tug a little bit tighter to their purse or whether or not they get online and say really racist things on Twitter, it doesn't matter what they feel, it doesn't matter what they think, it matters what they do. And I think that it's, you know, everyone who's listening to this, who, who thinks that like, you know, well, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Great. It's not about what you feel or what you think. It's about what you do, what you put into practice, and about the privilege you benefit from. And so these people who may, you know, I go in there, I go in there and be like, hey, I'm Jamil Smith from Rolling Stone. I'd like to talk to you about that. They may say, great, come on over. We'll meet you and we'll have a beer and everything will be great. And they'll not say anything racist. I won't feel anything racist happening to me. But it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? These are people who are, who are agents of racism and agents of, you know, system systemic misogyny as well. So we're talking about, I mean, the president is a villain. How do we sign up to help a villain and not consider ourselves villains too? Um, I completely agree with you. I would never sign up just for the record. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, um, so shifting gears uh, uh, here for a second, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about on the show uh, over the last few months is artificial intelligence and technology, mm-hmm. and and how we are how technology and things like Twitter and social media, um, Facebook and Russia and you name it, how these things were all built with with not necessarily good intentions, but boring intentions, if you will, right. how to get laid, how to go to a party, you know, things like that. <laughs> right. um, and we now see that they are being used against our democracy very successfully um, by, you know, other countries and, and governments. When you look at artificial intelligence that we're building um, and we're, it's currently being built, it's mostly being built by white men mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. Uh and as you just said, they may not. They may think, "Oh, I'm. I don't have a racist bone in my body," and so on. Do you worry that they are building systems in place that will inevitably have 
some sort of effect, maybe a massive effect on African-Americans? Oh, without a doubt. I think that, you know, if you don't have uh, the people in the room building the product who have various perspectives, whether they be, you know, um, racially diverse or gender diverse or geographically diverse even, you're going to have a lesser product. And you're going to have a product that doesn't build in, you know, sensitivities to other people. And I think that, uh, or in other communities. So, yeah, I think that, you know, we, we wasn't there like a Twitter thing, where, you know, where guy, they set up the automated Twitter thing and it became a racist in like... <laughs> it was the, it was the, uh, the Microsoft AI and it was, um, it learned from the conversations it saw on Twitter and the conversations it had and a bunch of uh, not very nice um, little pranksters decided that they were going to make it racist and so they started <laughs> teaching it in conversation about Hitler and Nazis and uh, eight hours in, it, you know, it come into the world as a happy little assistant that was happy to talk about culture and eight hours later was, a, a, you know, essentially talking about the Holocaust and race and so on. Yeah, and anything that's built by people is going to have human flaws. And the best way to mitigate those flaws is to consciously work against them before the thing is actually produced to the world. And so what I sincerely hope is that these guys in Silicon Valley understand that various human perspectives need to be a part of that process. Um, if they have any hopes of making sure that it's representative of all of us. Now they may not have those hopes. <laughs> I don't necessarily, you know, assume good intentions for pretty much from anybody. Uh, so, uh, what is a way that we can protect ourselves against that? You know, is it, can that be dealt with legislatively? Can it be dealt with, uh, you know, in terms of you know, our, our choices as consumers? Um, or is just, are we just going to be subject to it, you know, without any choice in the matter? It, that's the part that scares me about AI is the idea that I will be unconsciously and unwittingly and, uh, and unwillingly sort of inserted into that experiment. And that's not something I've signed up for, for sure. Well, it looks like anyone who's going to be using a computer or any form of technology will have signed up for no matter what, which is terrifying. Um, all right, last question. Yes. Uh, are you excited about 2018? Do you think that the Democrats are going to pull it together? Do you... I'm not I'm not big prediction guy. Um, that said, I think that's... It, Considering the momentum that we've seen politically, you know, the Me Too movement, uh, the March for Our Lives, the, the movements to make change in our politics in this country, I think it's inevitable uh, that people will respond a little bit more forcefully in November, uh, you know, certainly on the left. But at the end of the day, um, it's not necessarily about what happens in November. It's about what happens afterwards. And that's what I'll really be looking for is to see how whatever changes are made, um, whatever promises are made, um, are, are fulfilled, you know, in the years to come. I think that, I mean, if I make a prediction, I definitely think that they'll take the house. I mean, we're talking about, they need about 23, 24 seats. And, you know, most of the, you know, they have about at least that many, um, seats that are in, in, in territories and in districts where Hillary Clinton won, I think uh, people simply show up and are not, you know, <laughs> victims of voter suppression. Um, I think that, that it's a very, a very big possibility that uh, 
that they will take the House. Senate possibly too, if the, the Republicans uh, muck it up even further. I mean, what Beto O'Rourke is three points behind Ted Cruz as we as we talk right now. I mean, that's that's pretty astounding. You know, and that's Texas. So who knows? It, I think it's the possibility is wide open there for the Democrats if they are smart enough to take advantage of it. But just they should understand that they should be willing to be held accountable, that they know, hey, we, we, we struck a blow against Donald Trump. It's not cause for reward. It's uh, It should be the beginning, not the end of the struggle. I hope that you are right. And I hope that more people go to the polls and actually vote. And yeah, uh, uh, yeah I let, it's only a few months away, <laughs> which is terrifying and exciting. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 terrifying, but we've made it through the past what <laughs> 15, 16 months. Um, we think- we we think we've made it through. <laughs> As of this taping, we have we're, made it. We're through. still here. We're still here. There could be a nuclear bomb uh, jettisoning its way over. Well, we better upload somewhere. this podcast pretty soon then. Uh, Jamil, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Uh, where can people follow you? On the internets? They can follow me on Twitter at Jamil Smith. That's at J-A-M-I-L-S-M-I-T-H. Facebook, Jamil K. Smith. And Instagram also, Jamil K. Smith. Nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, John. Want to welcome you back just for a brief minute here to talk about one of our sponsors uh, this week, uh, Mattress Firm. They are the coziest Greatest mattress company on earth. Have you ever heard of them? Are you referring to Mattress Firm, a.k.a. America's Neighborhood Mattress Store? You have heard of them. You have. So they, uh, they're fantastic. They, they take your budget as far as you possibly can go. Mattress is a really expensive mattress firm. They offer lots of different versions that are affordable, um, that are so comfortable. Uh, they can give you a, uh, a bed that headboard adjustable basis sheets you name it they they have the whole thing um and uh and it's so simple to just go to the website and buy it nick these aren't just mattress purveyors these are heroes of everyday life these really are so what they're actually going to do this week though because they want everyone to get a good night's sleep who listens to inside the hive they're going to offer 10 percent off with the code podcast 10 that's the number mm. 10 so p-o-d-c-a-s-t-1-0 all you have to do is go to mattressfirm.com, put in podcast 10, and you get 10% off. And they give you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure that the mattress you buy is so perfect, which it will be, um, and, uh, and you get to save 10%. It's pretty, pretty amazing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to order. I'm going to do it right now. That was a fascinating conversation and shed a lot of light on a lot of things that I didn't know a lot about. And... Most of all, John Kelly, who I'd like to welcome to the show, on Ben Carson. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I'm. I wondered. I I wasn't always quite sure that Ben Carson was a um, a white supremacist hiding out in in the body of a uh, African American neurosurgeon HUD director, but um, I buy it. I buy it too. I mean, I pretty much buy anything from this administration, as Jamil was talking about. What do you think? is going to happen to Mr. Carson. We haven't really talked about him. I, I think there's so many other um, 
you know, villains in the uh, yeah. in the Trump show that we never really get to some of the others. And and I didn't really think about it before because we're talking about DeVos and Pruitt and you know right. all these other Mulvaney and the whole you know closet of monsters. What do you think is going to happen to Carson? You think he's going to be able to kind of stick it out? I think Carson is um, is you know doing a disappearing act. I think you're going to see more of that continue. I think that the the sort of like next round of um, of players in this, you know, the sort of like um, I feel like Trump's cabinet is kind of like Friday Night Lights, the TV show, where all of a sudden you have this like you know this cast um, uh, that you know, populated the first three seasons. And then, the, you know, Coach Taylor got fired, went to a different school. And then they they got rid of all the other kids and brought in a whole new crew of kids to, to probably to, to, to excite ratings. Um, that was when Michael B. Jordan joined the show. So I think that Nikki Haley is going to be the big star of the next round. I think that the way she stood up to, to Cudlow, she's, she's going to be a killer. I want to hear a little bit more about Haley. I don't know a lot about her. I know that she is incredibly ambitious, um, but what is – can you tell me or listeners or whatever – what is the story with her? Like how is she going to rise up through the institution before she gets fired like everyone else or will she not? Well, I mean here – at least my, my perspective on Haley is that she was um, – you know, she was obviously the governor of South Carolina, which is a fascinating job um, because, you know, South Carolina has more elected officials I think than like – you know, any state of similar size. So the governor is not really a big job there. I mean, the governor of any state is a big job, but it's not. Um, it's not like being the governor of California. You know, you're not. You're not um, wielding a massive economy and and and, um, and or being the CEO of a state the way Andrew Cuomo is. You know, um, uh, there are lots of interesting rumors about Nikki Haley's personal life. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not I've talking about the those. Michael Wolf ones. I'm talking about ones that that you know. Um, some of them, pieces of some have been published. Who knows? Um, uh, she's an incredibly carefully managed person, though. Right? So I, I think that she's a, an incredibly shrewd operator. Um, and I remember there were reports early uh, during the Trump um, transition that of all the, the 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 officials who were being placed into these, you know, uh, massive roles that they seemingly had little um, preparation for like Betsy DeVos at, at education that Haley was one this is what insiders were, were telling us at least that Haley was one that they they truly feared oh my god this woman knows a lot less than we than we realized and is really un- unqualified to be um uh the you know uh, secretary of the UN which is something that um uh, she probably never in her life thought she would um take up herself but you know Haley has so much of Haley's um uh in- enormous national reputation comes from the the, the very uh, profoundly important way that she handled um the uh, the 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 Confederate flag issue in South Carolina. Anyway, fast forward to now. Um, uh, Haley is a well managed, shrewd operator. And I think the thing that's extremely fascinating that's happening now is you know she got rebuked for talking about the uh, forthcoming Russian sanctions earlier in the week. Uh, Trump was pissed. Cudlow tried to reprimand her publicly. Haley pushed back and and really kind of stopped Trump and Cudlow cold. And that was interesting. But what was even more interesting, to me at least, was that was a real inside baseball move. Mike Pence tried to hire a guy named John Lerner, who was on Haley's, um, you know, like like one of her policy advisors. Um, and uh, Lerner is a never-Trumper, uh, which a lot of people had been before. And Trump went apoplectic, and, and, and the hire had to sort of uh, 
be dissolved. But a lot of people are looking at that move and thinking, is that some sort of handshake between Pence and Haley? Are these two shrewd operators who are sort of very carefully ensuring that they're not going to get so close to Trump? Because whenever the shit really hits the fan, you know, whether Michael Cohen flips, whether, you know, Mueller, um, uh, you know, comes bearing down on him, that they'll be relatively immune to the bad press and maybe um, uh, and maybe have some political opportunities. I mean, it's, some people are even saying, uh, you know, Tina, when our colleague published a piece about whether, um, yesterday about whether uh, Pence and Haley are even possibly contenders for a 2020 ticket. Uh, the only issue there, I imagine, is that they both want to be on the top of it. Anyway, that's my Nikki Haley download. I uh, well, it's fascinating. I mean, I I do think that um, that there's so much. You know, this is w- when the mooch who left Washington said that. You know, he gave that that great quote to uh, to to our colleague uh, um, at Vanity Fair that when you think of the worst person ever imaginable, the most vicious, vile person on Wall Street, uh, that's oh, right. the nicest yeah. person in Washington. Um, I think that there's a little bit of that going on right now, and we're kind of seeing it in Haley and company or or all in play. I don't know if I would give uh, uh, Pence, um, you know, that much credit. I think I don't think he's as smart as he likes to think he is. But who knows? Maybe maybe I'm dumber than than he's, I like to think he's I He's a am. shrewd operator. Um, I, I'm not you know saying he's smart. It's uh, certainly a, a lot of his. Um, a lot of his policy positions are, are just like downright primitive, you know. Um, and and look, the, the, the dude calls his wife mother, right? Which is just gross. So there are there are issues there, but but, but, but you call me mother, so to be. But I mean, he, he's always absent whenever there's a massive fiasco, um, and he's basically employed in the cabinet all these sort of you know donor fantasy icons like DeVos, you know who 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 satisfy the needs and niches of the Koch brothers. I don't think Pence has any chance in in an actual election. Um but I do think that um uh he's certainly keeping his options open. I mean I remember Ashley Parker he... saying on a um maybe it was um with the the slate Trump cast a, a, a year or so ago that that Pence is quiet and secretive, but there is never not a moment when he is calculating his political future. Hmm, that's really funny. Um, also, he wrote a really bad book about a couple of bunny rabbits. But anyway, we'll put it's that funny, aside. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, last question before we go. Um, do you think that this whole FBI thing, Comey, McCabe, is um, is going to continue to to rule the news for the next week, or are we kind of going to get a little break from it? Well, it's funny. I, I'm sitting in my office here watching Comey on Jake Tapper, and um, what Wearing I think the more same than anything blazer is that, that he's worn. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he needs a new stylist. I think that that like that sort of chic sport jacket that he wore um, on the on the Stephanopoulos interview during the Stephanopoulos interview on Sunday night with the with the yellow buttonhole. He's repeating the outfit too much. And I think everyone knows you can repeat an outfit once, but you can't repeat it frequently, you know, when you're doing media hits. And so he's breaking some sort of cardinal rule there. Um, but w- what's crazy to me is, I mean, you know, the, the Comey book has some news. It, it, I don't think it's as explosive as people thought it was going to be. But it it can't hold a candle to this Michael Cohen um, storyline, which is just mesmerizing. I mean, I feel like that is... Um, where all bets are off. Um, there's another date in court tomorrow, I believe. Um, uh, and 
you know, we'll 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 learn more about um, what that the FBI rated is admissible. What what isn't? I, I presume at some point it's all going to be um, admissible to court. But um, you know, I, 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 is Michael Cohen prepared to go to jail for twenty years? That, that's what Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, um, asked on NBC earlier this week. Uh, it's you know, it, I, I think the possibility of a flip is is uh, certainly becoming increasingly uh, vocal in news circles. Politico and the Wall Street Journal noted it um, in pieces late this week. It, you know, when, when if this stuff is real, he's facing very serious, potentially, you know, uh, time. And, um, uh, you know, that's... Uh, it, it, a lot of ifs everywhere. Who knows? You, you know, in, you're innocent until you're proven guilty in this country, but... Um, it's uh, it's extraordinary, and this is closer than anyone ever thought. Yeah, completely. Well, I look forward to no longer turning on the television and seeing James Comey talk about James Comey. Uh, it'll be a nice little break. I've never really yearned. I, I just want him to change more. his shirt. That's all. Yeah. Well, we could just we could we could come to an agreement and just agree not to look at him anymore, and then we don't have to see if he's changed it. That's a good idea, Nick. Um, John, as always, it's been fascinating. Uh, this was a really fascinating show with Jamil. I'm, um, I'm really happy he came on, um, and uh, you should go read some of his stuff. It's fascinating. I can't he's, wait. He's Jamil's awesome. Writer. Yeah, he's he's a very massive talent. Yeah. Uh, Till next time, John. Nick, I will I will miss you every moment. <laughs> Bye. Thanks to my guest Jamil Smith, and of course John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you did, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with yours truly, Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing five-star review when you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Mattress Firm and Mac Weldon. I will see you all next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.